Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex, your host, and it's show 36. If you can't tell how wide the grin on my face is right now, it's massive. My sister gave birth to a beautiful baby boy this morning and my whole family is ecstatic. I am oscillating between tears of joy slightly hysterical ones at times where I just look at his little face in a photo. I'm just about to go and meet him at the hospital this afternoon with my son and my mum and uh, and just, yes, oscillating between uh, joy and tears, a joy and tears, a joy, and it's all joy. But um, yes, it's a very, very exciting day. I'm very excited, of course. Uh, a lot of you guys know this, that I am bringing a big stash of the beautiful Walida Baby Care range to the hospital this afternoon. Uh, so it's really ironic that Walida are also our show sponsor this month. Please make the most of this offer. It is a huge and generous offer. You have all of the details in the show notes and your special code to shop. And I'll be giving away, uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter. I'll pop a link for that as well because all giveaways on Low Tox Life newsletter only. I'll be giving away uh, the whole baby range. So this is a brilliant range to gift a mum-to-be, dad-to-be, gift someone with little babies, especially like, you know, good friends or maybe you've got a, a... chemical sensitivity issue that you've been able to identify because you're hip with this stuff, but maybe they haven't seen it yet. And gifts are a beautiful, gentle way to suggest perhaps a change in direction because they'll get curious. They'll love the smell. They'll ask you, why did you choose this? And and it's a really nice way to invite curiosity. So gifting is the way forward with gorgeous low-tox things. Otherwise, of course, keep it for yourself. That's what we often do in this family. So the calendula range is really special and they've got a gorgeous new calendula cream. And if you heard me a couple of weeks ago, true to biodynamic principles, they're testing this flower every couple of hours until they know the absolute most active time of the plant for harvesting to get the best out of that calendula, to get the most amount of healing benefits. It's a really incredible range. It's what I started my full low-tox journey on when my son was born. Rather than just using the odd thing here and there, it was kind of a big commitment that I made at that time. And uh, and we sure loved it. He loved his little massages with the calendula baby oil and unfortunately doesn't want me to massage him anymore. He's ticklish. So there you go. Grew out of it. But uh, yes, make the most of the offer. It's really, really generous. 20% off, free shipping over $29.95. Not something that happens every day and something just for us. Now, on to the show. Very excited to bring Nick back today from Milkwood Permaculture. Last time we talked about permaculture as a broad topic, but today we're talking about bees. And if you've never cared about bees, I really challenge you to listen to this show. It's not a hugely long show. Go for a nice little walk. And by the end, I'm pretty sure you're never going to be able to look at a bee the same way again. Actually, I guarantee you that. Nick has an amazing love for bees that just lights up through the microphone and you can just feel it. And I've been looking at bees since our chat last week in a whole different light. And, you know, he told me that I'll be able to see like little facial expressions and 
ways of being and chilling out and, and buzzing around and uh, and I, I was just ecstatic to see that I actually could see that difference when we visited my mum-in-law at the farm this weekend. So I hope you love the show as much as I loved chatting to Nick and uh, I'll see you in the show notes for all the details on this month's partner offer. You've only got another couple of weeks to go And also we're doing a giveaway of the whole entire baby range. So please do make sure you're a subscriber to the blog, which literally just sends you news of the latest podcast shows, maybe where I'm speaking next, events that I'm involved in, as well as all the tips that you've come to know and love and recipes that you've come to find delicious. Thank you so much. Enjoy the show. Morning, Nick. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm fantastic. That's good. What's the weather like your way today? Uh, well, I, I've lucked out today. We're actually on the road and we're spending a couple of days at uh, the amazing Buena Vista farm in Gerringong and I'm looking out over the ocean and the headlands uh, and it's a gorgeous autumn day. Oh, how beautiful. Well, Sydney's, Sydney's looking good too. Nice sunshine. One of those perfect autumn days. I'm heading up there today, so... Oh, it better cool. be good. <laughs> <laughs> I've just switched it on for you, Nick. You're, you'll be fine. Thank you. Now, today we're talking about bees, as promised in the last show when I basically put you on the spot and said you're coming back to talk about bees. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and the last time, obviously, we discussed permaculture broadly as a brilliant design concept, and I encourage everybody to check out that show for people who um, think, A, that permaculture might not uh, apply to them because they live in a city, or um, B, have just always been keen to actually understand what that word means. It was a really great chat that spoke to exactly that and the reason I wanted to bring you back to talk about bees is because in designing you know as we do with the permaculture principle beautiful systems bees are very much an important part of those systems and I'd love first to just super basically ask you why exactly do we need bees well Fundamentally, a vast amount of our food is is pollinated by bees. Uh, I think it's forty percent of our food crops are, are pollinated by um, bees. So they are fundamental to turning flowers into fruits and vegetables. Without bees, we wouldn't have that movement of of pollen from from plant to plant and and the development of the fruits that we love to eat. So tomatoes, pumpkins all the eggplants, chilies, you know, a vast number of different vegetables that we eat are fruits of plants and obviously all the fruit trees, plums and cherries and apples and pears and all those things rely on on pollinators to produce that that food. So for us as as things that eat, it's intrinsically important to our lives that that we have, you know, insect pollinators and particularly these incredibly efficient pollinators uh, bees to to do that job for us yeah and so when you know scientists sometimes say and I'm not painting scientists with a broad negative brush here it's just some science is obviously speaking to nature and other science tends to try and move us away from nature when you see certain scientists suggest that we can create mechanical pollination what how does that make you feel oh I think it's just uh, it's hubris. Mm. <laughs> when uh, I, one of my hives might have twenty thousand very, very efficient, enthusiastic pollinators that go out and spend, you know, twelve hours a day visiting flowers to try and replicate that with some 
machine that has to be you know maintained or or repaired or built in the first place it's it's pretty far-fetched there's there's talk of people making you know little tiny drones that can do can actually pollinate a flower that's the one and good but pollinating hundreds of thousands of flowers good luck with that yeah exactly nature does it best right yeah yeah (laughs) self-repairing self-replicating little organisms that that look after each other and repair each other uh, is is just something which we're a long way away from being able to to do Uh, at the moment we do have crops which are hand pollinated in some places of the world you know people are employed to use little paintbrushes to move pollen from one flower to another but that's an incredibly tedious job that um, is reserved for people who are paid very very small amounts of money and it's not uh, it's not something that we want to promote yeah absolutely and just to give us a rough idea of how many different types of of bee species there are do you have a ballpark for us Oh, there are thousands of species of bees yeah. um, all over the world. Each different place has its own collection of native local local bees. And then there are some bees which are more cosmopolitan and have travelled over really large areas. And the one that most of us are used to, the one that the picture that we, we see is the, the western honeybee, Apis mellifera. That's the one that you know most people think of as a bee. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of other species of bee, some of them look really similar. So, you know, we have around Sydney, um, you often will see in the garden, the native blue banded bee, a gorgeous little, little looks like a honeybee, except it's got kind of really light coloured eyes and these lovely pale blue bands over its, its abdomen. Mm-hmm. That one looks a lot like a bee, but then there's many, many others which are much smaller or much larger that, that don't look a lot like a normal honeybee, yeah. uh, which you might recognize immediately as a bee. You know, just to hear you talking about all these gorgeous details of bees and you said cosmopolitan and I instantly pictured a bee with like lipstick on and a handbag. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to then sort of hear you describing Well they're all they're, they're all girls. Well, yeah, almost. yeah. Most almost. of the ones you see are girls. Yeah. yeah. And then to picture them you know, all the different characteristics, it just sort of made me realise, you know, again and I come back to this so many times on the show, which is we're leading such busy, fast lives that we've become mindless to the beauty of nature. And I think one of the key steps to us actually understanding and and developing a fire in our belly for changing some of the things we do day to day to protect our people and planet on on a certainly a greater scale than we're currently doing is to become mindful and mindful of the magic of these beautiful creatures and all of the variances but depending on the different species and once you're in tune with them like of course we want to protect them yeah yeah i mean the first permaculture principle is observe and interact it's it's get out there and just look see what's happening and you know it doesn't matter where you are whether you're in the middle of the city or um, out in the bush, uh, sitting and watching flowers. I mean, terrible pastime. And then to watch them be visited by this you know, cornucopia of amazing little insect species, all these beautiful little wasps and um, little flies, you know, things that usually you think wasp, oh, terrible, or fly, oh, gross. You know, the, the little tiny flies that you get that are pollinators, they're not the sort that cause you know, uh, decay in food, yeah. <laughs> little wasps that can't possibly sting you. 
and all these amazing little bees that come and visit visit your flowers to move that pollen around and and prey on on the pest species in your garden they're incredible and they are incredible and you know a lot of people say oh i can't meditate for example you know sitting in a room and 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 taking deep breaths and like if you can't do that then please get out in nature sit in a park and look at a tree and see what happens because that's meditation too and oh. you know i think a lot of people struggle to see how they might quieten their minds and and need something to focus on and i think mindfulness meditation in nature which is something i learned the practice of at quite a conscious level at the beautiful billabong retreat last year is an amazing way for the busy mind to become quiet by busying itself with something that's possibly more important than anything else that you've busied yourself with that day which is totally. the whole reason we're alive and and it's yeah, big something you know? is beyond beyond mm. your control and much bigger than what you are. Mm. And it, it's great to feel small. I think we feel like our problems are too big too often. And if we go to nature, we realise we're just a beautiful tiny little cog in an incredible wheel of amazingness. Now, talked about different types of bees. I, I've got so many questions I want to ask you. I don't want to forget anything here. Well, the, one, the, the, bee, that, the bee that most of us you know, think about, that, that Western honeybee, um, that's the one that is uh, the predominant one that people keep. Uh, it's definitely the predominant one that people keep to make honey. Right. That that Western honeybee, when it when it came to Australia, it found paradise. Mm-hmm. And here in Australia, the, the 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 Western honeybee, the Apis mellifera, is incredibly productive in terms of the amount of honey that it, it can make for a backyard beekeeper. And that's so that's the one we typically focus on. Mm. Some people do keep. And some native bees as well. So there's a little native stingless bee, tiny little thing, only a few millimetres long, and it's it's called uh, Tetragonula carbonaria. It's a lovely thing to keep, but uh, definitely down around Sydney, it's unlikely that you'd get much of, you know, of a honey yield from them. They uh-huh. do produce a small amount of honey. That's quite different, very, very different from the honey from, from Western honeybees. Mm. Uh, it's it's uh, incredibly sort of it's floral and it is a much higher water content, so it doesn't store indefinitely like what what uh, normal honey does, and it develops this sort of citric flavour, lemony kind of flavour as it kind of starts to ferment. And oh, it's it really sounds yummy. delicious. It is. It's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, I'm an ambassador for an incredible program that Walida, the brand of non-toxic skincare and homeopathic medicines, have put together as a huge fundraising and awareness campaign around bees for the native stingless bees, where we've got these little Airbnb hotels for the bees. And they're gorgeous. You know, you get your kit and it's beautiful um, hardwood with all these little quills and twigs and things that you put inside it. And it basically creates a dream home for yeah. um, for the little native bees to come and hang out in and... Uh, and we just installed ours at the farm a couple of months ago. And uh, and yeah. I'll, I'll pop the link in the show notes to everybody who has a kid in school because you can get one of these kits for your school and turn it into an education piece. And it's just a really beautiful, of course, completely um, risk-free because of the stingless factor way for kids yeah. to engage in observing and getting excited about bees. And now you've got me on a mission to taste this incredible different style of honey they produce. So I'm on to well, that. Well, this is... 
there's a kind of really big division in the bee world between bees that live in colonies and those that live in, in colonies where they build a, a hive as such. Mm. Those ones, they're the ones that can produce honey. But a lot of the bees that which will inhabit those kind of insect hotels or Air, <laughs> Airbnbs, as you call them, <laughs> they're, they're going to be solitary bees. Mm-hmm. So one bee has a lot of trouble producing enough honey to make an impact yeah. for a human. So those solitary bees, they do a great job of pollinating and providing, you know, biodiversity in our in our ecosystem, but they don't they don't store up enough honey to be able to for you to have a taste of it. Ah, okay. Only yeah. the ones that form a colony that um, can do that. And there are native Australian bees, a couple of different species, like three different species that do form these colonies where they produce excess honey, but none of them anything like what that Western honeybee does. Mm. And something I'm curious about, Nick, a lot of vegans choose to not eat products from bees. Isn't it their job? Like, don't they just love making honey? I I, I can respect that perspective, though. Yeah, um, no, no. I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see. They do. They do collect honey, and they are in a place where they can collect a lot of excess honey. So from the colony's perspective, you know, thinking of the colony as a superorganism, Mm-hmm. then, it, you know, we kind of have a contract with our bees that we, we'll give them a, a great home, you know, a waterproof, warm, safe home where they can they can raise their babies and they can use that as a base to go out and forage and they can procreate like normal. But the, our side of the bargain is that we get to rob their hive of, of honey. Now, mm. obviously, if we rob too much, then that's going to threaten the, 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 the superorganism. It won't mm. have enough stores to get over winter so we have to be very conscious of that but if we leave enough for them they can thrive the superorganism can thrive in that circumstance but it's very difficult to manage a hive in a way where you you know an individual bee doesn't get killed mm. every time i open a hive i'm going to i'm a big blundering ape <laughs> um, it's very difficult for me to get to in not there squash without, one yeah killed. yeah killing some bees and that does happen so if you know your perspective is one where your spirituality or your belief system is completely against the taking of another organism's life then probably beekeeping is not for you because Mm. it will happen but if you zoom out a little bit and thinking about it from a a broader ecological perspective we are helping this super organism of the hive to thrive so the bees, you know, individual bees in summer can live as, have as short a life as a few weeks because they're working so hard. So do you look at the individual as being the most important part or do you look at the superorganism, this beautiful hive built from the, the secretions of the bees? You know, it's, it's made from their body. It is their body. It is their womb. It is their, it is their store of resources. If you think about that organism, then it's like we're killing a few cells of the organism in process of helping it to thrive. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? So it's really about where you're focusing on the whole thing. Yeah. Mm, okay. Uh, you, you just made me think about, you know, spiritual taking of another being's life. My acupuncturist a couple of weeks ago, I was on the table and, you know, when you're all needled up and uh, it, it's kind of impossible to shoo a mosquito off your foot and this mosquito completely destroyed my foot. And he comes in, uh, you know, gentle Buddhist man, and does this huge ha and gets this mozzie. Slaps the mosquito. <laughs> and he said, I really, really struggle with the taking of another being's life. However, with mosquitoes, I feel it's self-defense. <laughs> it just made me laugh. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's engaged with food production at any level and is actually spending time nurturing soil or nurturing plants or, you know, looking after animals comes to terms with life and death. Mm. Well, you can't, you know, dig up a crop of garlic without killing a few worms. It's impossible. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I also... Um, you know, I was vegan for, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I know, yeah. It means that um, I think that there's there's a middle ground. I don't mm. think you should be absolute in anything and that I think that finding a middle ground where you can be part of the natural world and engage with the natural world but have respect for it and have respect for it in a way which, you know, doesn't kill without consciousness. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. You mentioned, obviously, over-farming honey is something that endangers bees and their populations. Are there some other things? Obviously, pesticides is going to be a huge one, and I'd love to hear... That's probably the biggest. It's the biggest, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, pesticide use. It's very difficult to create a poison which only hurts one target organism. Mm. And although nobody's out there creating poisons specifically to target bees, the broad range of different... Uh, insecticides that are produced to protect crops are deadly to, to bees. So it's the number one thing that people can do is is support organic agriculture, support farmers who don't use those kind of pesticides on their crops because that that's the thing that threatens them probably more than anything else. Mm. As far as beekeeping practices, there is a lot of pressure on the larger end of, of the honey producing uh, industry to produce a commodity-based honey as cheaply as possible so that the margins are as high as possible. And that drives a lot of practices which are really, I, I, I wouldn't say they threaten bees as a species, but they definitely put a lot of a lot of pressure on individual hives and, and shorten the lifespans of those hives and have them living in what I think is definitely suboptimal conditions for the health of those bees. Mm. And, and, and that can then create situations where the spread of diseases can be much, much more devastating to populations. Yeah. You know, you have, you, have a, you have a hive that's under stress, a hive that's being moved around, a hive that's being harvested really hard, a hive that's being fed sugar rather than collecting um, beautiful nectar from thousands of different plants, then you get situations where they're much more susceptible to disease. Yeah. And we're seeing worldwide bees succumbing to a range of different challenges other than just pesticide decimation, which is the main one, but but even, you know, diseases like Varroa mite in uh, Europe and North America, which is, is being devastating to those, especially those commercial hives. And, and luckily at the moment, you know, Australia doesn't have that particular pest, but it will come. Um, it will come into Australia at some point in the future. And when it does, it's um, going to be those big commercial uh, honey producers, which probably suffer the greatest losses. Yeah, and isn't it interesting? It's almost like, you know, you mentioned putting bees under stress is obviously one of the huge risks to their populations. And it just makes me think back to, again, it always comes back to this beautiful Ayurvedic saying, think with the seventh generation in mind. And unfortunately, our economics does not allow CEOs to think that way. Because if they don't perform and if we don't go up on last year and if you don't shave this off the bottom line, you know, that's their stresses. And unfortunately, their stresses aren't corresponding with the seventh generation in mind. They're literally thinking, how do I save my job this year? 
um, running yeah. this company, and uh, and it just it feels like we've really lost our way, and there's a big disconnect there. What are your thoughts on that? I'm kind of putting you on a spot with quite a philosophical question here, but how do we re- repair such a systemic issue? I think it's about scale. Mm. There's 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 a saying, you know, that in business that you don't have success unless you can get economies of scale. It's it's how McDonald's, you know, has has gotten so incredibly successful. Uh, everything is repeated and efficiencies are gained all along that that process of repetition and scaling but in the act of scaling we lose the nuances we lose the observation we lose that interaction and we lose the ability to to listen to the environment around us and i think it's one thing that people can take is that i i, I fundamentally strongly believe that you cannot have a large scale solution to any of the challenges that we face. It's about getting small and getting intricate and, and connecting with the environment around us. Every, every organism in the natural world finds a niche and finds a place where they can, can relate to their other participants in their ecosystem. If we come in with any kind of one-size-fits-all solution, it won't. Mm. It just never, never, ever will. So if you're looking you know, to try and choose which honey brand, go for the small one. Yeah. It's always going to be big, better than the big one. Um, if you're looking for a choice about where to get your food, go to the small farmer, go to the little local market gardener, go to the little greengrocer, go to the little stall at the farmer's market. They're always going to have a more nuanced and intricate approach to their to their world. That's just And it's just such a simple thing for us all to do. Even if you pick your top five items that you use as a family – and change those, and that's just going to have a huge impact. You know, a lot of people think, oh, but I can't change everything this week or even this year. That's it's just too big for my head right now. I've got so much going on, four kids, yada, yada, half, you know, jobs. Yeah, just and slowly just change start, Yeah, start with something really specific and say, okay, if you guys have milk and bread and, and eggs every day, change those three things and, and yeah. find a small producer. And it's just such a great way to feel like you've made a dent and and feel a bit of success and you know us humans we love a bit of gamification as soon as we feel a sense of reward around something then it encourages us to do more uh so it's a really important thing to chunk it down from day one and start small yeah and 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 make a decision and then just stick with it i mean so much of where we get into trouble is that we have this sort of idea that you know constantly changing our our bread, for example, is something which brings more joy to our life. No, just find your local baker who does a good job and then just buy the, buy the bread from them. Yeah. And you never have to think about that ever again. Now you've just solved yourself a stress. Yes. What bread do I use? I yeah, well, decisionship, right? It's a huge yeah, exactly. uh, tax on our, on our overall brain space. Just simplify a little bit. And then maybe one day you'll start making, making your own sourdough and then there's no more decision. I don't buy bread. I'm a person who makes sourdough bread. Great. Mm. Okay, that's what I do. You don't have to make a decision anymore. And making decisions can be incredibly tiring and stressful for people. That's exhausting. Uh, I say get rid of them all. Just Mm. choose one good one and then stick with it. Yeah. And, you know, I I wrote a blog post on this ages ago. I'm going to dig it up and put it in the show notes um, with two examples in my life where I just instantly cut out the decision making, which was I was realizing I was tossing up whether or not to clean the frying pan of 
the scrambled eggs I'd made in the morning, literally every morning. Should I do it now? Should I wait till I get back from the daycare drop off? Or, you know, <laughs> that is just do it. That time that you took to think about whether you're doing it or not is the time that you could have actually just cleaned the damn pan. And, uh, and the other one was as soon as you see something really great on a cafe menu, stop looking at the menu. Start chatting to your friend because you know what you're having. You don't need to then deliberate and go, oh, am I making the right choice? It's just a beautiful meal with a friend. Focus it's an on... illusion of mm. choice. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Is that totally. we, we convince ourselves we're making significant decisions and we stress about these decisions because, you know, we evolved to focus a you know, laser-like attention on decision-making because they were – Life and death. Yeah. What you have at the local cafe is not life and death. No. And imagine if we freed up some space to then actually think more about the big stuff. You know, a lot of people can't think big picture. You know, how do I affect, you know, for example, how do I protect my bee population around me? It's just too big. So, but that's probably because we're not leaving enough room in our, in our heads to think, well, what can I do about that? Because we're worried about whether we should clean the darn frying pan or not. Yeah. So we're very lucky in Australia. You know, our bee populations, our, our western honeybee populations and, and our native bee populations are doing really well. Oh, you know, that's it, great. This is one of the, the – still the Garden of Eden for bees, Australia. And we're actually now a major exporter of queen bees and bee genetics into other places in the world uh, where, the, where they're having a lot of trouble with their, with their bee populations. That's not a – I don't think that's a positive thing in the sense that I don't uh, like to see, you know, queen bees being shipped all over the world. I don't think that helps, but mm. it, it is a sign that, you know, the Australian bee industry and, and native bee populations are doing really well. So we don't have colony collapse disorder, for example, in Australia. That's, that's, there's no evidence of that yet. And we don't have varroa mites and there's, you know, other bee diseases that we don't have. It's important that um, we have, you know, amazing people who work for Australian quarantine uh, inspection services that stop these pests coming in. But like I said before, I, I think it's only a matter of time before some – we've already had varroa mite, for example, arrive in Australia. The Asian honeybees have moved into Australia as well, so there are different species of honeybee to keep honey in other parts of the world, but it isn't generally thought of as a, as a honey producer for commercial providers. Mm-hmm. It's coming into Australia and people are worried that it becomes a vector for or disease as well. Right. So there are threats. Yeah. At a you know personal level, people can do a lot to support honeybees. Mm. So you know maintaining diversity in their gardens, having lots of flowers, and also even just at the most basic level is supporting farmers who follow organic practices. Yeah, that's huge, isn't it? Yeah, because some of the some of the pesticides are really terrible at their effect on bees, and so that's what has really caused colony collapse disorder. Or well, that's what we think is the major cause of colony collapse disorder now in in Europe and the USA. Colony collapse disorder is where whole colonies will go out to forage for a day and then they just don't come home. Oh, thousands that's devastating. Yeah, it's really horrible. Mm. Uh, and then you've got these little babies uh, hatching out with no one to look after them. So the, the colony just dies. I mean, really, that is just devastating, isn't it? When you really think yeah. about the weight of those words. Something we saw yesterday was that horrific chemical um, uh, poisoning of the beautiful people of Syria once again. And you know, to see the image of those children gasping for air, this is what's happening to our bees with pesticides as well. It's, uh, it's really yeah. just devastating when you put some weight to it and really stop to think. And I know we've got a lot of US and, and UK listeners 
So you mentioned a few things that we can do to support bee health um, in our own backyards. Are there any specific flowers that are really, really great to plant? Well, it's funny. So the, the Latin name that I've said a couple of times, Apis mellifera, that's the, the, the honeybee, mm-hmm. uh, the Western honeybee. There's a whole group of flowers and plants in your, in your garden, and you'll all have them in your garden already, and they're from Apiaceae. So the family of plants is called Apiaceae. So Apis mellifera for the honeybee, Apiaceae for the family of plants. Apiaceae is the carrot family or the parsley family. And those plants, you know, coriander, parsley, parsnip, carrots, oh, a huge diversity of different flowering plants, things like Queen Anne's lace and uh, tansy, and oh no, what up, tansy is a daisy. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a huge, huge range of, of flowers from APAC, the family APAC, and they do an amazing job of supporting pollinating insects like bees. They have these umbelliferous flowers, these umbrella shaped flowers with lots of little tiny tiny flowers that make up that umbrella oh yeah and they provide a perfect landing zone for a bee or another pollinator to land and fill themselves up with with nectar and then fly off to the next landing zone they, they just do so much for our pollinators when you when you plant apac the other family is asteraceae which is the daisy family so the daisy family or the carrot and parsley family and leaving your parsley to go to flower, for example, is a great thing for insect pollinators in your garden. Oh, and a lot of people hack their plants once they've used them for the season as well. So leave them right there. Yeah, things like parsley especially, leave, leave them to go and, and they'll be good for the insects, but they'll also drop a whole bunch of seeds and then you'll have a new crop of fresh, young, healthy uh, parsley next next season. Mm. Is that you to do it? It's, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of inexperienced, I've seen it so many times at friends, oh, it's looking a bit dead. Let's just pull it all up. Or it's, it's you know, we've, we've finished using it for the season. Let's just get rid of it. And one of the things that you guys do is provide amazing education, especially for urban farming and urban garden growing to actually just teach people those basics because I think there's a lot of people who just assume, oh, I've got to now go and buy a fresh small version of it that looks really alive and well and then plant that, and it's just not the case. Yeah, well, some things, particularly things like lettuce and, uh, and parsley, like I said, they, they self-seed really easily. Mm. You don't need to go out and buy that another punnet. APAC, that, that carrot family, is yep. just probably the number one easiest one to, awesome. to think about and to grow. And, you know, I I'd always think about my situation. We obviously have the beautiful mum-in-law's farm that we get to be much more hands-on in a garden with than in our urban setting, which is a two-bedroom apartment without a balcony. But we do have – I mean, there is some communal garden space downstairs, very shady though. What can a a shady urban environment – what can we do there? Because there might be other people Mm. out there who are are thinking, oh, it's, you know, got a lot of tree cover and it just doesn't seem like – our garden gets any sun. Sure. Well, main, maintaining those trees. I mean, bees nest in in hollows, mm. and not being freaked out as well. Sometimes, what happens is, you know, the the hive or the colony, the bee colony, procreates, builds another colony by splitting off a swarm. So every year, all over Australia and all over the world, in, in springtime particularly, honeybees swarm. The queen bee leaves and takes a whole bunch of worker bees with her to a new location. When they do that, it can be quite confronting for people who are who are near a swarm. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but this uh, this mass of bees arrives in your backyard and they form a ball of 
thousands of bees on usually on a low hanging branch and it's just this ball of bees it's really freaky when that happens the first thing to do is don't panic though they are really uh, docile when they're in that state they might look scary and sound scary but they the last thing they want to do is pick a fight because if that queen the one queen that's with them gets killed that's it for that 10,000 strong ball of bees wow and they'll all die if, if she dies so they don't want to pick a fight with anyone so you know when I'm when I'm if I'm catching a swarm I can capture a swarm with my bare hands they just won't sting you wow uh, into a cardboard box. I don't even, you don't even really need to wear protective clothing. Um, I've got some photos on my Instagram of me, you know, with my face right next to a swarm of bees. They're, they're oh, I'll really, share a couple really of those. Fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so when that happens, don't get freaked out. They're just looking for a new home. And the home that they're going to find is a nice hollow thing with a small hole. Now, scary thing is that might be the eaves of your house or it might be a hollow trunk of a tree. One of the things that we can do to provide habitat for bees is maintain old trees. You know, don't chop them down just because they're starting to get a few hollows in them. Mm. Just like for birds and bats, one of the locations that uh, bees are going to live is in these hollows of these old trees. So especially if you've got a bit more space, then having those old trees is a great way to provide a bit more habitat. And if bees don't move in, then a bird will nest in there or bats will nest in there, and, and that's good for everyone. Yeah, and I love what you've said there. It's good for everyone. We tend to want to keep nature out. We tend to, you know, I've seen it so many times on um, social media where someone puts a picture of lettuce that has like a, I don't know, some some sort of insect in it, going, ew, gross, I can't believe it. <laughs> just, It's actually yeah. just the best sign in the world when, you know, the things totally. that we're eating actually have evidence of having living things on them, which means there wasn't such a huge spray of pesticide to kill it in the first place. Another thing that people can do is, is provide water for bees as well. Um, so they drink just, oh, like, okay. just like everything else they need to drink. And mm-hmm. that having a, a bit of a beach on your pond, if you've got a pond in your backyard, mm-hmm. creating a little bit of a beach, sandy or pebbly beach, so that the water goes from you know incredibly shallow and, and up to dry land in a graduation um, now bees can land on the rocks and sort of walk down and have a big drink and then fly away again. So that can be another thing that people can do to help. Oh, that's so cute. The way you describe it all, it really just turns them into like little people. Yeah, well, they're, they're just out. Mm. Did you know that bees have naps during the day? I did not know that. Yeah, they, they, so they say, you know, uh, busy like a bee. And that's true. They work very hard. They can fly up to five kilometres away from the hive to, to forage pollen and nectar. But uh, when they get tired, They'll, they'll find a nice flower somewhere and they curl up, often lying on their back in the flower. Just it's this picture of serenity. I've, I've seen it, you know, myself in the garden. You'll find a flower and there'll be a bee lying in it, often covered in pollen, lying on their back, looking like they're dead to the world. And you're like, <laughs> you touch the flower and they go, oh, 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 wake up. And then they fly away. And they're literally <laughs> having a nap. Then little pollen coma, a happy yeah. pollen coma. Yeah. That's so cute. Oh, now... If we wanted to keep bees, obviously seems easier to do in a rural setting, but there is a way to do it in an urban setting. There's some amazing local urban bee farmer stories, which I'll share a couple of in the notes, just a couple from the UK, US and Australia, so people can see, you know, how local you can buy your food in the centre of a city. What can we do as, as an urban person wanting to get started on beekeeping? What, what are the, what's the setup we need? Well, 
the first thing that you need to do, I think, is is, is learn a bit about bees and about about their yeah. ecology and their behaviour. So just like looking after any, any animal, your goal is to create an environment for them that that keeps them happy and healthy and, and not stressed. So there are different types of beekeeping and different types of hives, many, many different types of hives that, that people use. The most common one that people have in Australia is called a Langstroth hive. So that's mm-hmm. really the hive which allowed beekeeping to industrialise. It's the hive that, you know, yeah. uh, more than 100 years ago, people started using to scale up honey production. So in a sense, it's a bit like, you know, um, having a large-scale dairy for a house cow or having, uh, mm. you know, a chicken shed, giant chicken shed for your backyard chickens. It's not necessarily the most appropriate design yeah. for a home beekeeper. So I have Langstroth hives uh, where we live. We share a property with David and Sue, or David Pongram and Sue Dennett. David was one of the co-founders of the permaculture uh, movement and the, the idea behind a permaculture and what milkwood teaches. But they had a whole mm-hmm. range of these Langstroth hives on their property. They had eight of them, uh, which is a big population of bees, you know, 150,000 bees. <laughs> and wow. uh, I've been managing, since I moved there nine months ago, I've been managing their hives and slowly converting them to a more natural management technique, still using the same size boxes that Langstroth hives use, but changing a few things in the way that they're managed to make them a little bit more like the ways that bees would exist in the wild. We prefer to use a, a technique, we, we call it natural beekeeping is the technique that we use. And you can do natural beekeeping in a Langstroth hive, or as we do, we use a type of hive called a Waray hive, which was developed by this amazing French monk in, in around, around 100 years ago, who trialled over 300 different hive designs before he came up with one that he called the people's hive. And it was a hive that you know was perfect for everyday people to look after bees with and we use an Australian variation of that hive and a whole bunch of techniques to minimize the intervention that we we do on those hives so in our case with those ware hives we only only open the hives a couple of times a year a year we harvest honey maybe once or twice a year depending on how well they're going oh wow and you really do tune into whether that is an appropriate time to yeah. to harvest rather than just getting in there how can you tell well one of the ways that we tell is by the most appropriate way, I think, to, to understand what's happening in the hive is to sit and watch the, the, the bees as they, they come into the entrance of the hive. So we can tell whether they're raising babies or not or whether they're bringing back honey or the, we, we say whether they're on a honey flow, which means there's a lot of nectar around, by their behaviour as they come mm-hmm. back in. Like It's amazing watching a female worker. She's coming back in and she's just flown two or three kilometres maybe with a, a belly full of nectar. And she flies back and she's heavy and she's erratic in her flight. She'll often miss the landing zone and crash into the front of the hive and fall to the ground and then, oh, I'm so full, <laughs> climb back up, come, in, come inside. Whereas, a, you know, a worker that's been out collecting pollen, you know, she'll fly back in with these great big colourful sacks of pollen on her legs. We know if she's bringing in pollen that she's bringing in pollen to make bee bread to feed the baby bees as they hatch. Aww. We know that, that you know, the, that they're raising babies at this point, which is tells us whether or not they're confident that the season is going to continue. They're going to ah, yes, more workers to go out and harvest more, or maybe they're getting to the end of the season. Like now they're in, depending on the climate, they're, they're, they're slowing down their, their production of babies and their, their brood and they're moving into a reduced colony size 
to make it through the winter um, rather than, you know, having mm. this full-on, you know, 20,000-strong colony. Oh, they'll reduce their numbers right down and slow everything down and just sort of chill out and only go out when the weather's perfect like today. Wow. Bees are amazing. Yeah. I'm just so excited to have shared all of this information because I'm a huge believer in, you know, for us to act, we need to understand and really, you know, empathise at a level with the the challenges at hand of that particular species. And you've certainly helped us do that. Nick, would you be okay to share a few resources that you like to point people to, uh, maybe overseas who can't attend one of your workshops when they're on? Sure. Yeah, that'd be really great because I know we've got a global audience and there'd be a fair few people today after this chat wanting to see what they can do to up the ante. And remember, the first thing you can do is stop buying the huge large-scale brands, head to a market and go to a local bee farmer. Yeah. We, can, we can all do that. And, and you can keep bees in the city. You, know, you just need to make sure, or you keep bees anywhere, but you need to make sure that you understand a little bit about their life cycle and their ecology before you jump in. Um, it's why when we teach courses mm. and when we talk about bees, we don't you know, talk so so in depth about the, the the practical handling of the bees because learning to handle bees is one thing and it's important once you understand how they work. But uh, a beekeeper who has practical knowledge without any understanding of the nature or the ecology of bees can can kind of blunder in there and, and do a lot of damage rather than one who spends a bit of time understanding how they live. And, and cities can be great places to keep bees. They have a huge amount of floral diversity. If you think about all the different flowers in all the backyards and front yards of the gardens in your suburb, that means that bees can, you know, always have some nectar and some pollen to find. But there are challenges in finding the right spot for, for bees in the city. Remember, you know, bees are foraging up to five kilometres. So wherever you live, there will be bees from local hives coming and foraging in your garden. So people have fears that if they're, if they have a hive, it's going to be a, a big risk to their neighbours or to people around them. And there are rules around being close to schools and the like. But realistically, there are definitely people with hives within five kilometres of you if you live in the city. So mm. the bees are everywhere. And but yeah. yeah, so as long as you have a little bit of space to allow a clear, clear flight path and a nice protected spot for those bees, then you could definitely learn enough and, and keep bees yourself. I've found it one of the most romantic and beautiful uh, pastimes, uh, keeping bees. I think that they're just, they fascinate me when I do open up a hive and get to see inside their, their wonderful world. Um, it always fills me with joy. I can hear it in your words. I really can. And, you know, pesticides are harmful to them in, in a really real way. And I think I, I might just have one last question for you here because I see in in my chat groups and my alumni groups from Go Low Tox, one of the, the hardest things to pry out of the hands of some of the partners out there is the bottle of Roundup for the weeds. Uh, and so there is pesticide being sprayed in a number of thousands, of course, of homes across the world thinking that they need this uh, product to, to kill weeds in their garden. Can you give us like your absolute best weed killing tips so that we can get a few more homes ditching the um, the old bottle of Roundup in the cupboard? Ah, well, okay. I, I live on 2.2 acres of beautiful gardens and the, my number mm -hmm. one weed killing tip is embrace them. We, we, we don't actually Yay. have... Yay, thank you for saying that. Tips. Yes, it's um, like ants. It's like ants. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm getting ants on my... I'm like, what, what's wrong yeah. with ants? 
I, don't, I, I mean, don't get it. Okay, so the, the number one weed killing tip is embrace them. The number two tip is if you if you want to get rid of them, then pull them out, pull them out, or or uh, yeah. maybe go crazy and pour some hot water on them. <laughs> if, if you really really want to, mm-hmm. we have and and people go, oh yeah, but what do you do about the really invasive things like onion weed or cooch grass or you know all all those sorts of things? We we just pull them out if we have to they never get to be such huge numbers the, the best thing that you can add to your garden is your eyeballs and your time being out in that space is is how we manage weeds yeah we have a little bit of blackberry coming up occasionally mm, yeah we have okay we have a, a little bit of grass in our garden beds but we pull it out if it's a problem Mm. And that's another really beautiful, mindful thing to do. I, I love a bit of weed pulling myself. Like it's actually a really good meditative activity. Yeah, it's a, it's um, it's spending time out in the natural world. Mm. That's the, the the main thing that it is. Fantastic. And that is is incredibly beneficial for everyone involved. You know, gardening it's 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 like therapy, but you get tomatoes. And it's just such a beautiful way to bring joy to your life. Totally. Mm. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again for another great chat. I'm sure I'll think of something else I want to ask you in the future. But your enlightenment on the subject of the beautiful bees of our world today has been really special. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. I always enjoy a chat. And, and I'm really passionate about bees. And, you know, if I can convince a few people out there to, to just spend a little bit more time thinking about them and be a bit more mindful in the way that we engage with uh, the natural world, then I'm, I'm happy. I think it's job done. You can sleep well tonight. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.